So getting into it, how are you, Nadia? I'm good. Yeah. And I don't know if our listeners can hear the like crinkle of this Sunday post-dispatch, but we had to pull this one out of the woodworks because front page, I see Forest Park basketball court plan follows talk of exclusion. Questions around race have long simmered. This is your work. Mm-hmm. Front page. It sure is. Front On the day page. we're recording, and it is Sunday, what's it, February 19th, mm-hmm. 2023. Shout out to my girl. Shout out to my girl. Thank you. So we're really going to get straight into this. Clearly, we are getting the most live work, um, arguably the most nuanced work, you know, when it comes to like... Black activism happening in St. Louis, and we're just so happy to have you on today. I'm happy to be here. I'm so happy to be here. All right, so I'm going to start with your bio. Nadia is from Norman, Oklahoma, where she obtained her undergraduate degree in political science from the University of Oklahoma. Nadia is now a PhD student at Washington University in St. Louis, but soon will be transferring to the University of Minnesota's sociology PhD program in the fall. She is broadly interested in the modern manifestations of racism and colorism, the black experience, and the roles that sports play in upholding racialized structures in the United States. Ooh, that hit, I almost (laughs) wanna say that again, but I won't. (laughs) She focuses primarily on the ways in which sport, particularly basketball and football, function as a paradigm for broader racialized dynamics within American institutions, while also examining the intersectional dynamics of gender, class, and body image. She is currently working on a number of projects that include, but are not limited to, her master's thesis, two academic publications, and partnering with local St. Louis sports organizations. Lastly, she is deeply invested in subjects surrounding cannabis, racism, athleticism, body image, and athlete activism. Also, Nadia is one of my best friends of fucking St. Louis, so give it up for her. (laughs) (laughs) So, Nadia, bruh, this bio, this bio. I know. This goes hard. (laughs) This goes hard. We got to break this down. So we're just going to spend today really getting to know who you are and telling the people the work that you're doing because, like, I see you every single day. And I see you in, like, I see you in regular form. I see you in the mornings. I see you when we're getting ready to go to the club. But, like, to sit here and, like, actually read your bio on paper, I'm like, damn. I know. Damn. I know. I know like, there's, we talk a lot about our work and how it often intersects, but... It's nice to sit down and actually kind of dive into like what that means because mm-hmm. um, I know when we get together it's always a time to cut up and separate and mm-hmm. separate from the work, separate from the ivory tower. Mm-hmm. So this is nice. Mm-hmm. Right. So first off, my first question is just how did you get into sports sociology? Yeah. So when I initially, you know, was finishing up my undergrad and applying to grad school, I was at the time interested in police contact and, you know, the carceral state and its impacts on black Americans. But as I started my PhD program, I had realized that, you know, although an important topic and important subject, it's not only oversaturated, Mm -hmm. but I think that there is this, 
you know, there's this highlight, like hyper, you know, awareness, hyper vigilance of wanting to study black death and black mm. trauma. And I wanted to, you know, kind of divert from that. I, I'm so tired of seeing, you know, every academic paper that's published is on like these traumatic experiences that black communities face. Um, so I wanted to come at it from a different angle. Well, still, while still study, studying, um, you know, discrimination and, and racism, but also looking at like resiliency and how, you know, black people show up for one another and how we use, you know, positions of, that we're like placed in or that we have been afforded, um, minimal, but mm -hmm. it's there. Um, and how we use those positions to, you know, uplift one another and, you know, talk about things like black excellence. And mm. so, yeah, it was really just like a preserving my peace. I really just was tired of doing readings and writing on black death and I wanted to switch it up and, mm -hmm. you know, look at like things that, mattered to black communities outside of you know these traumatic experiences right and on top of that like me and my dad we always bonded over sports mm -hmm. um huge sixers fan especially so i just kind of like channeled you know my relationship with him into my work mm -hmm. and for those of you guys who are tuning in and can't see nadia is wearing a sixers jersey with the number three who are you representing alan iverson alan iverson <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's so beautiful that you made the active decision to study, you know, black joy, black culture in more of an uplifting and playful way just because, well, one, sports are so important to us, but two, I remember my first year in the sociology program just having to do all of these readings about lynching and about mm -hmm. segregation and about, you know, things that historically, yeah, they've happened and they have serious impact on us. But like, at the end of the day, they just don't define blackness alone. Right. Like, That's not the inherent black experience. Um, I think community is the inherent black experience. I think resistance and resiliency is inherent to the black experience and is central to our experiences. I don't think that these although important and although, you know, like you said, have lasting impacts, um, that is not our only experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then also, let's get into this. So you're talking about multiple things in sports, not just racism, but colorism, gender, class, body image. For those of people who might, they might get you know, racism in sports. We saw the NFL with their end racism campaign. We saw the NBA with, you know, their standing for Black Lives Matter. I guess, how do you see all these other factors fitting in together to to make what, you know, what we see now in sports? Yeah, I think, again, is like, you know, when we talk about, for example, athlete activism, again, ways of using, you know, positions of power you know, to some extent, you know, access to money, access to, you know, big companies and using those athletes, using those positions to, you know, speak about things that matter to them and matter to their community, mm -hmm. but also analyzing how, you know, big institutions such as the NCAA, the NBA, the NFL mm -hmm. also continue to, 
like forward disparities and forward discrimination like really points to just the way that like our American institutions act as well. Mm. Um, it's almost like a mirror image. Mm. Mm. And do you think these sort of things are um, important to the fans that watch sport? Or do you think that this is something that we're not necessarily thinking about day in, day out when we would just want to watch the game on Sunday? Yeah, I think it's like a little bit of both. It's it's nuanced because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, especially when you talk about football, like the fan base is very white. Mm. So it really is like a, you get a lot of people with the narrative of like leave race out of it. Like it's integrated. We mm-hmm. see a lot of black people in these spaces. So it must be like, we've much, we must've reached like some level of, you know, equity or equality mm-hmm. because, you know, when you talk about the NFL or the NBA, it's over 50% black um, mm. players. But then you do things like you go and sit in the stands. Like I often go and sit in the stands and I just will listen to the way other fans talk about players and Mm. it's really dehumanizing Mm. and it is racialized. Um, So like, I think that there's a part of it that people are really just like trying to enjoy a game, but like I'm trying to point to like, we can enjoy the sport and still acknowledge that these things are real and alive and like also find a way I haven't figured it out yet because Mm -hmm. these institutions are permeated and they're rich and, but I think that there's hopefully like a path where we can understand that we can be fans and enjoy players and enjoy the game while also recognizing that like it's deeply racialized and, you know, athletes are exploited for their work um, overwhelmingly. So. Right. I mean, even just like, I used to always just feel so bad for athletes when going to games because I would hear all these people just like yelling at them and saying, you big dummy, you're this or that. Mm -hmm. And there's always these comments about their bodies and what people expect them to be able to do. And it's just like at the end of the day, us as fans are not capable of doing any of that stuff. Otherwise, we would be in the NBA, in the NFL. But then all of a sudden, we forget that these are humans just simply doing human stuff. And like, I mean, people are mad, Mm -hmm. like mad, mad when like these players lose a game. Like they forget Mm -hmm. that they're people. Mm -hmm. It's just at the end of the day, like people feel so drawn and impacted by it and I don't know, the relationships that fans have to players, I think sometimes just be a little deep and sometimes kind of toxic. Yeah, I think it's, and it's honestly, this is how I feel about celebrity culture in general is Mm -hmm. like this hyper, you know, awareness of celebrities and athletes and then forgetting that these are, you know, at the end of the day, like these are people, these are not modes of production. Um, These are people that are choosing to do something that they love you know, at the end of the day for a paycheck and an often, you know, in often cases like a big one, um, you know, when you're referring to the NBA and the NFL, but these are still people. Um, mm-hmm. These are still people that are trying to make a living, trying to do what they do. Um, yeah, I have a lot of feelings surrounding mm-hmm. fan base energy because um, mm-hmm. I know that like for me, I can sit back and enjoy a game, but I can also sit back and enjoy a game and like very quickly analyze like these racialized Mm -hmm. conversations especially in terms of like commentators um and you know if you go watch a you know if you go watch an nba game you know next week and you listen to the commentators you'll start to pick it up but there was a paper that was published Mm -hmm. um on the way commentators talk about division one basketball players Mm -hmm. and 
Division One basketball players that were light skin. Um, they were seen as like intelligent or, you know, the moves that they were making, they, it was words around like their mind and how they're smart. Um, but then you start to look at how commentators talk about like tall, bigger body, darker skinned athletes mm -hmm. and they're monsters, they're beasts. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like this very coded racialized language that, you know, was centered around like these controlling images, you know, of black men, um, and you see it, like, you see it produced in colorism. Like, it's not just, like, a stark difference mm -hmm. between, like, being a white basketball player and being a black basketball player, but it's also deeply embedded in colorism where, like, mm -hmm. light-skinned players are seen as smart and, mm -hmm. you know, knowledgeable about the game, whereas dark-skinned basketball players are seen as monsters and beasts and mm -hmm. they're only good at what they do because they're big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then when they do make an intelligent statement, like such, you know, LeBron sometimes says some pretty useful things, and then they're looked at as like, oh, you should just go play basketball, mm -hmm. or you're like the exception. Like, why can't more yep. players be like LeBron? Yep. And we all know that's coded. But then I also want to ask, because you, you also have gender in this, and talking about black men, I totally see this, and I don't think we ever think about the ways that, like, violence can be gendered towards men. Mm -hmm. Like, even though it might be a system, uh, a system of violence ran by men and controlled by men and supposed to be for men, mm -hmm. it ends up hurting them. So I think that's really interesting. But on the other hand, let's take it to women. Because mm. when you were talking about dark bodies, larger bodies, the first thing I thought of was Serena Williams mm -hmm. and all of the racism that she deals, deals with. Mm. So... I guess, what are your thoughts on this with women's sports or even like co-ed sports, for example? Yeah. Like, do you see the same things happening or does it look a little different? Yeah, I see the same things happening. Um, I think it becomes, you know, once again, nuanced, but I think it especially becomes that way when we start talking about women because... I haven't done, you know, any research mm -hmm. to justify this. It's anecdotal. But mm -hmm. what I notice is that black women, their racialized experience as athletes seems to be like especially permeated in white spaces. So mm -hmm. white athleticism. Mm -hmm. um, so like you said, tennis. Um, and I guess, you know, when we talk about track runners, um, especially like, you know, short dashes with the way that we talk about you know mm. black women that are running in the olympics mm. um what's her name Sh shikari shikari Richardson. Yeah. yeah and you know she stepped out in earrings and nails and mm -hmm. ran as fast as she could and it was immediately like she's ghetto why is she dressing like this mm -hmm. it's like this very racialized language mm. but it seems to be so much more permeated in like very white sports mm. or like where we see more white people in those sports mm. but even the way that we talk about like black women as coaches like basketball coaches or like sport commentators um it's really really hard to get your foot in the door as a black woman within sports um and mm. i think that it's very um like deeply problematic and it's it makes it like a turnoff it makes it a turnoff for black women to want to put themselves in these positions to talk about sports because it's you know seen as like you don't know too much about sports like you right. can't like you're a you're a woman like mm -hmm. but i think the way that women like black women approach like sport talk 
it it feels very intersectional in the way that I talk about sports. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like black women commentators like acknowledge these institutions and these systems in a way that like men don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I think men are like often quick to like separate like politics um, or sociology from sport, whereas like black women. I don't think that that's the case. I think this is like something that we often see like as a dynamic. Mm. So I feel like you're talking a lot about the personal being political. You're talking, a lo- you're doing a lot of critiques on gender. You're pulling from black feminism, mm-hmm. aren't you? Always. Always. <laughs> like, shout out to shout Patricia. Out to no, no, shout out to my girl, Patricia. <laughs> Controlling images. If y'all are interested in the theoretical work. Nadia is quoting some great literature that will be in the show notes. So yeah. we look, this is theoretically sound, baby. We yeah. we back up the things we say. And it's funny because I pulled mm-hmm. like what actually ended up making my final switch was that mm-hmm. theory class. And, you know, we, we read excerpts on the controlling images of black women. So I went and read her book, um, Black Sexual Thought. Mm. Um and she has like a whole section on controlling images of black men and how that is like so obvious like in the sports realm and she the first person she highlights is Allen Iverson and mm. I took it from there mm. so mm. and look where you are now oh, no okay and you recently just mentioned Shikari Richardson and I want to I want to bring it back to her because she is like if we want to talk about weed and sports, mm-hmm. let's start here. Mm-hmm. Let's start here. So all that stuff that went down with her testing positive for marijuana and being disqualified. First off, can we talk about the fact that like there are so many drugs out there? Some of them are performance enhancing and legal, mm-hmm. aka steroids. Mm-hmm. And those actually make you better. But I've never, I have never smoked weed and thought, you know what? She should get two gold medals for I that. I can run faster. Like, I'm stronger. <laughs> like, like, to be able to run faster and then test positive for weed, like, that's two gold medals. Two gold medals. Like, in a way. Two. And then, yeah, like you said, is like, there's, like, Adderall. Adderall is, like, mm-hmm. a, something that is, like, newly starting to, like, come up in the news of athletes using is, is like, that's a stimulant that is, uh-huh. you know, and not to say that athletes can't have ADHD and mm-hmm. all of those things, but, like, it's becoming an issue where people are abusing it and overusing it to perform better mm. because it's not something that's drug tested for. Wow. Um, but God forbid an athlete chooses to smoke some weed. Mm-hmm. So. And I mean, I'm going to just ask like this in race, class and gender, like how do you see that playing out in terms of people and athletes and weed and other drugs? Yeah. I think that, I don't know if I have an opinion on how it plays out. I mm-hmm. think for me, it's just simply like, it goes back to like this exploitation piece. And I feel this way about drug testing across, mm-hmm. you know, all jobs, but, or in general, but I think that like, it's this exploitation piece where it's like, we're going to make sure we use up your body as quickly as we can to make mm-hmm. us as much money as we can. Mm-hmm. But we're also not going to give you access to your own body. Mm-hmm. Like there's no autonomy to your own body. Mm-hmm. Like you can't smoke, you can't, you know, do these things. And I just don't, I think it really plays into like this piece of like no bodily autonomy for black men or black women, mm-hmm. especially when we consider that like the two sports that we're talking about are again, like at the professional level, predominantly black. Mm. 
Right. Um, wow. So, yeah. Dang. All right. So then, I guess with, like, with performance-enhancing drugs, do you think that there should be more policy around it? Or it's, like, how would we make it so that, like, it's not just a bunch of black men getting tested for weed? Because, frankly, I see tweets from basketball players, and I don't even keep up with the NBA, talking about, yeah, this is, like, the fourth time I got tested for weed, like, this week, but it's random, and none of my other teammates have got it. So mm-hmm. is it really random? Or is yeah. it along racial lines? Right, right. Like, and it also makes me wonder is like, I don't know, I have a bunch of surrounding theories and mm-hmm. they can be contested because they're not, you know, based in any kind of empirical work I've done on it. But mm-hmm. I do have this theory around like this over highlighting or hyper fixation on performance and mm. like stats chasing. People mm. like to call LeBron like a stats chaser. So constantly trying to beat like these like very, very impossible tasks which on the one hand this these are why these are some of the best players in the world like they are overwhelmingly performing well but i think that like this culture around like instead of highlighting like the beauty of the body and the way that the body moves in sport it's like highlighting you know performance and it's highlighting you know how much how much how many you know shots can you take how many mm-hmm. three pointers can you make because again, I think that that is all deeply rooted in how much can these big, you know, industries make money, make a profit, turn a profit. And so I think the issue is, is that when we get to a point where we're not, you know, overtly hyping up like performance, but rather like focusing on the way like these like black bodies are moving in such a beautiful, like melodic way. Mm. I don't think that there is a like a want for Mm. stimulants and Mm. you know steroids and things like that because those are all about performance enhancing well Mm. if i take if i do steroids like i'm going to perform better which in turn is going to make me more money Mm -hmm. i think it's just all deeply rooted in you know racialized capitalism and i think when we move away from that and maybe Mm. move into like sport being an art Mm -hmm. there's no reason to Mm. to take a stimulant there's no reason to take steroids Sport is an art. Like, I play pickup soccer regularly, and I feel like when I'm out there on the field, it's just so, like, relaxing. Like, there's no pressure. Like, I always think, should I go competitive again? But because, you know, it's pretty competitive. Like, we play to our best ability, but ultimately, it's just such an act of, like, self-care and Mm self-expression. And you can just see people's personalities just shining on the field and, like, if there was less pressure for athletes to do something like that, I mean, one, it would it would it would it would take the entertainment aspect up even further because athletes are entertainers. Yeah. But yeah, and I think yeah. that there's a piece of it that's also kind of deeply rooted in, you know, homophobia as well mm. is that like when we think about the fan base for sport, it is predominantly men. Mm-hmm. And you know, men don't want to talk about how the way other men move is beautiful Mm. or the way that other men perform Mm. on the court or on the Mm. field is actually like a beautiful sight. Mm -hmm. You know, the way that like these bodies are able to like exceed, you know, expectations is a beautiful thing. That's why they're there. Um, So like I try to approach sport from like a, you know, I don't really care about how many triple doubles so-and-so made. I care about, you know, 
how is he taking care of his body when he's not doing this? And then how is that showing up on the court or on the field? So. Mm. Wow. And all right, let's get into the work you do here. So you're here in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we always talk about how much we love being St. Louis transplants. Like it has our heart. Um, And as I read at the beginning of this interview, this headline, I mean, front page of the Sunday Post-Dispatch, your work about, you know, basketball and building, like, courts and things like that with Whereas Hoops. Like, can we just get into that? Yeah, so Whereas Hoops was created, it was initially started by John Early and Noah Cohen at WashU, and uh, they tacked me on, um, I would say, about eight months ago as a collaborator, um, and our ultimate goal has been to bring basketball courts to Forest Park. Mm-hmm. You know, a park being bigger than Central Park, you know, one of the largest parks in the United States in a predominantly black city and having no basketball courts is puzzling. Mm. Um, and it's very racialized, especially where you consider where Forest Park sits. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just really, it's been a, it's been a struggle. You know, we're finally at, we're kind of nearing the end. They're supposed to start working, you know, on construction towards the end of this year. Um, but that's, you know, obviously getting pushback from the very rich, very white community that stays right across the street from Forest Park. Mm. Um, but yeah, like I, I mean, I have a lot to say about, you know, the project itself and like what it means to not have basketball, you know, or football for that matter at this point in a city that, you know, is predominantly black and I don't know, like there's something funky about it. And I think like we can all recognize that. And then mm-hmm. on top of the fact that like St. Louis, I just found out, you know, p- this past week is that St. Louis has produced as a city has produced the most professional athletes than any city wow. and yet has no sports that can be associated with blackness. Mm. So it's a weird dynamic. I think it's a very weird dynamic. And then, you know, I went to an open house where, you know, citizens of St. Louis can show up and, you know, have their input on what they want the basketball courts to look like, um, have their opinions about, you know, where it's being placed in the park and things of that nature. And, you know, talking with the people that are wanting to build it, it's, you know, putting trees up around the park because, you know, the people across the street don't want to, don't want to have the basketball courts in view. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, no lights. They don't want lights for the basketball courts. Mm -hmm. Um, they want noise minimized. They want, you know, they say coded things like they want more security. Mm. Um, and so as much as I am very pro putting basketball courts in the park, I am also deeply concerned with what does this look like for policing in the park as well mm-hmm. um, and heightened policing in the park where we expect, you know, black St. Louisans to gather. Mm-hmm. So. Mm. Wow. So a lot of concerns in terms of like implementing this. Are you still excited about it? Like I'm very excited about mm-hmm. it. I think the biggest thing is, is like, getting in touch with the local community, the local black community and letting them know that like, Hey, basketball courts are going to be going to be placed in, in forest park, because that seems to be the issue is, is that, you know, when I talk to black St. Louisans, it's, 
they have no idea. Like they, mm. they don't have any clue that this is something that is happening. Um, another issue that I, you know, take in is that, you know, when we talk about impoverished communities or black communities, um, or anything of the like, like how are black communities of North County going mm-hmm. to get to Forest Park without right. a car? Because public transportation mm-hmm. almost drops off completely to connect North County to the city of St. Louis. Wow. So and I Forest Park is like right that. in the middle. Yeah, right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Right in the middle. Um, it's right in the middle of like this deeply se- segregated city. Wow. Um, wow. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, hey... I I applaud you for this because I know this work needs to be done and there's a lot of difficult questions that you're going to have to like figure out as you're moving forward with this but the community engagement piece seems really great so yeah, yeah. I hope people listening you know feel like you know what if I want to get be a part of this and I'm from here like yo hop in this is your yeah. city like yeah. this is your tax dollars y'all <laughs> yeah and that's i mean public sociology means a lot to me um you know publishing and doing you know the bullshit that mm-hmm. they require us to do like the bureaucratic stuff like i don't care about that like that's not reaching mm-hmm. the public that's not reaching the general public like we're just a bunch of academics writing for other academics right and so it's so important to me to like put my work into practice Um, and whereas hoops has given me that opportunity and that's why I'm even more excited about it because none of my work matters if I'm actually not reaching the communities that you know inform my work that's beautiful and you also said um, you know in your bio that you're actually going to be transferring to another university soon that's not in St. Louis. Yeah. So I'm super sad about that, but I'm very happy for you though. Yeah. I love this city. I think it really was just, I needed to find like a deeper connection with a university. You know, I'm used to going to public big D1 Mm -hmm. and transferring to like this very small private university I'm quickly realizing that like was not something that was meant for me. So mm-hmm. to go back to, you know, a big public D1 mm-hmm. where, you know, there's basketball, professional basketball team, a professional football team, mm-hmm. like college teams. I'm really, really excited. I think it's going to do a lot of work for, you know, informing, you know, the things that I want to talk about and write about. I just have to now find a way to get in touch with those communities um, mm-hmm. and, you know, make a difference within those communities of Minneapolis. Yeah. And I think it's beautiful to like notice that like, it's like you're already talking about connecting with the communities and trying to like help them out before you even move there. Like you want to be part of it and you don't want to just come in and just change things. Right. And I, I sometimes just get a little, I don't know what the word is, disappointed, disheartened at the idea of, academia being a place where we can be frequently in contact with community without having any sort of pressure, incentive, motivation, et cetera, et cetera, to actually improve it. Yeah, it's exploitative. Like, we want to use you for, you know, mm-hmm. all of the traumatic experiences that you have, drop in, you know, watch you, interview you, do all of these things, but actually do nothing to give back to your community. Um, mm-hmm. Academia, like, I kind of 
associate it with like mission trips um, that kind of is what it feels like you know mm. promoting that you're doing something but you're actually not doing anything for these communities mm-hmm. so yeah i mean uh and then i think it gets even worse if he's like well i mean we're both black women who came from the same program and dealt with many of the same issues of race class gender and experienced the same treatment of people and yeah. it's been it's been rough like yeah. I think there's no need to sugarcoat I think there's no need to like pretend as if like even though this work might be our passion like sometimes it's just so unsafe so mentally um violent psychologically violent that you just you feel like you have to go somewhere else to do what you want to do so I'm upset that you're leaving, but like seeing you prioritize yourself and still figure out ways to do the work that you want to do is beautiful. And a lot more black women deserve that chance to take care of themselves. And I think that that's what makes it so like deeply unfortunate is like, again, like this is a private school that is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, brings in hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, again is deeply embedded like within a very black city and not only are you guys like producing work on these you know on these communities and not giving back but you're also like hurting like your black scholars Mm -hmm. like you are you are not contributing to your black scholars in any way to like feel supported and feel heard and feel loved like i think Mm -hmm academia is like this silo of like okay well once you're in academia like there's no such thing as emotion there's no such thing as love there's no such thing as care and that's not fair because we're still human and they want us to dehumanize ourselves to fit into like this academic narrative Mm -hmm. and I refuse to do that like no I care about my work um I love my work I cry about my work Mm -hmm. and those things are all real and I think academia and I think both of our experiences in the department have been trying to minimize those feelings Mm -hmm. and it's just absolutely not fair so i'm not staying here i'm gonna choose peace choose peace (laughs) choose peace (laughs) (laughs) all right and then uh this has just been this has been a really good interview so i just want to pause and like (laughs) take some time we went through it i know like we took some turns i know all right, so I think at this point we're getting ready for our rapid fire questions. So, Uh-oh. Okay. you ready, Nani? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> Uh-oh. So, first off, what do you watch or listen to when you're elevated? Mm, I'm going to go off of who I listen to. Mm-hmm. Always Beyonce. She's always a top five. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I watch? I do a lot of documentaries. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very typical, a lot of sport documentaries. Those mm-hmm. always make me feel good. Mm-hmm. So. That's a good one. Should have expected that one. <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then what do you get, when you get the munchies, what snack are you reaching for? Anything with cheese. Ooh. Anything with cheese. cheese. Quesadilla, like huh. grilled cheese. Huh. Like I don't know why. That's good to know. Yeah. Cheese always. And then something sweet. I always go for something sweet. So You know what? You spend a lot of time in Europe. So I mm-hmm. feel like mm-hmm. I, I can see it. I can yeah. see it. And, and speaking of travel... Favorite place or country you've been high? Amsterdam. Mm. Amsterdam. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Guys, literally, <laughs> when I 
I just took a recent trip to Europe, a solo trip. It was postmasters, just needed a break. And when I got to Amsterdam, Nadia sent me an entire guide of where to go, what to get, where to buy my stuff, where to get your weed at, because, mm -hmm. you know, plenty of stuff is legal there. Mm -hmm. And the itinerary was perfect, and I followed it, and I left, and I was good. Yep. I was great. And now we're going to take a girl's trip back. We're taking a girl's trip back. If mm -hmm. you guys are interested in going back to Amsterdam with us, let us know, mm -hmm. because there's a beautiful black woman ho hostel out there, actually titled Hostel, mm -hmm. will be in the show notes as well, but... It just, it was beautiful. And I was, it's in a black neighborhood too. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. yeah. Black girls can have a good time in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. They <laughs> sure can. That's, that's why it was one of my favorite spots to go to. I went there way too many times to count. Goals. Goals that your life. Okay. And then how and when do you like to partake? Like, is it every once in a while? Is it more so daily? Yeah. I, it's funny because on my, on my way here, I was telling my partner, um, I was like, do I feel like a fraud? Like, am I a fraud? Because I'm not someone that, you know, smokes throughout the day and operates their day, you know, smoking. Mm -hmm. And he was like, no, like you enjoy smoking. Like yeah. you just enjoy it differently. And so I personally, 95% of the time, I that's the way that I unwind. You mm -hmm. know, at the end of the day, I have my wine. I mm -hmm. relax. I smoke weed, I eat dinner, and I go to bed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes I'll smoke in the middle of the day, but usually it disrupts my day because I just want to eat and take a nap. Right. Because <laughs> um, that's just, I think it's just like a, you know, creature of habit. Like, mm -hmm. I'm so used to smoking in the evenings, and that's, you know, I eat and I go to bed. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. mostly mostly the nighttime every day. No, I'm glad you mentioned that because I do not want people to listen to every episode and think, you know what? This means I should smoke 25 joints a day. <laughs> like, that's not the goal. The goal right. is to have a relationship with a plant that works for you and also helps you think deeper about yourself and the world around you. Yeah. So if you're somebody who smokes once every three weeks when you go out with your friends mm -hmm. or maybe occasionally to get to sleep or you don't smoke anything and you take edibles because you care about your lungs, which yeah. I applaud Can't you be for. Me. <laughs> I think another thing with weed as well is that like I feel so like you said it's like it feels deeply intimate like mm. I feel intimate with my work you know I don't necessarily work when I'm when I'm smoking but I come up with like a lot of ideas mm -hmm. and thoughts when I'm smoking mm -hmm. I feel like I'm deeply intimate with food deeply intimate with my partner deeply intimate with my sleep like mm -hmm. that's that's just how I see weed like I see it fitting as like this really intimate piece of my life that's beautiful so. oh my god and then what's your favorite way to partake edibles dabs vaping smoking mm -hmm. yeah. um blunts 100 percent dutches backwoods Backwards? i know i know i know i know Look. shout out shout out to kobe for that one because he definitely he definitely put me on backwoods but dutches and backwoods are are my favorite mm -hmm. um i do love like bongs and pipes because I feel like they save my weed. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not burning my burning through my weed as quickly. Um, right. And it's really convenient. You know, it takes two minutes to pack a bowl. Right. So, you uh. know, it's one of those things where it's like if I just need something quick and easy. Like, right. I'm surprised you didn't say edibles because you made me some mean <laughs> edibles last week. All right, y'all. So literally, 
we had an episode we did with Aize Jamal Everett, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person, psychologist, like legacy of the Black Panthers. Like we went deep into it and I felt myself greening out for like the first time right before the episode because I had a big ass Rice Krispie treat from Nadia. Mm -hmm. I um, like making them. It's just that, you know, what I told Renee last night between her and my partner, they're they both smoke way more than me and you know when they ate it and they came back to me and they were like these are really really strong i was like yeah i'm not eating these then sick like, <laughs> you're sick you're freaking sick <laughs> but you know what that was also one of the best interviews i've ever done with the person so yeah i go. had my black pepper had my like hemp extract and cbd <laughs> stuff and i was right yeah. i was right so thanks yeah. for that man <laughs> All right. And then lastly, could you just plug us to, you know, your socials, website, events, just any opportunities to connect with you in the future? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at NJNADIA13 or Twitter, which should just be my name, which is Nadia Jackson hyphen Fitch. Um, I'm sure, you know, you know, you'll provide that. In the show notes, yeah. Yeah. yeah so. Cool. All right. Thank you guys well, for having me. Thank you so fun. much for being here. This was so good. Are we doing a round of applause? That was cute. Hell yeah. I'm proud of us. Look at yeah. us. Yeah, we made it. Nice.